thanks for joining the DermVet podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Bourgeois, a board-certified veterinary dermatologist, also a mom of two trying to find the balance just like everyone else. Let's learn to ditch the itch, cytology, everything, and make derm more fun than frustrating. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Well, I hope you're back. I hope you've listened to the other episodes, but welcome to the DermVet podcast. Today, I am thrilled to talk to you about skin biopsies. Yay! <laughs> I love a good skin biopsy. It's um, just so satisfying because I feel like when you're going to do a skin biopsy, you're going to get some really good answers. And sometimes you're dealing with some really cool diseases like pimphigus or maybe a cool, you know, autoimmune disease like erythema multiforme, whatever, just something that is going to maybe be a little bit out of the norm of a derm case, but it just gives you so much information. It's really an important diagnostic step to help determine the etiology of a cutaneous disease. So you get to the point of biopsy, you might not know what's going on, or you're ruling out some really interesting lesions that you can't quite put your finger on. So I just think biopsy is a really cool diagnostic tool that we have. So when do you want a biopsy? It's really going to be indicated when you have a particular derm uh, pathology or disease that maybe is really acute. So maybe something's popped up very quickly. There's no history of derm issues in that pet. Maybe it's really severe, so the animal breaks out rapidly um, with really fire engine red um, lesions that don't look like a typical infection. Of course, first and foremost, you're going to do a cytology before you biopsy these pets, and we'll get to that a little bit later, how important that can be. If they're non-responsive to therapy, so maybe you thought it was something like an allergy dog, but they're not responding to a medication like Apoquil, and we know we have the infection under control, and we just want to make sure there isn't something else going on. If you just get a lesion that looks weird, it doesn't really match the stereotypical um, allergy lesion, it's not a hot spot, like it is just a weird scaly lesion and you want to really find out what's going on. I biopsy lots of weird things where I really don't don't know exactly what it is because if I knew what everything was, I wouldn't have to biopsy. So we're going to break this down into a few different sections. What I want to start with is talking about selecting your biopsy sites. And this is extremely important. I have had a few cases over the last uh, few weeks where they've come in already having a biopsy done that didn't give us a lot of information. And that can happen. I mean, we even get biopsies back that doesn't exactly give you a slam dunk diagnosis. We all hate getting superficial perivascular dermatitis because it doesn't really tell us much. But what you want to avoid Because when I see these cases and I say, you know what, I really do think we need a biopsy, it's really hard when something's already been, a biopsy's already been done. But the things that I feel like we can really do to stop that from happening as often, one, take a lot of sites. It's always really difficult when we get a diffusely affected animal come in, they've had biopsies done, and I see that one little punch biopsy was taken. 
if we, and we're talking about more of the diffuse patterns, like an autoimmune disease, um, something like that, not just, oh, you're taking a nodule off or you're taking a tumor off. If you have a diffusely affected animal, something where you have multiple sites, please take at least three to four sites. Please, I beg of you, do not just take one site if you have an entire trunk of a German Shepherd affected. Sometimes you can submit four biopsy sites and for the pathologist, maybe only one really tells us a lot of information. You know, the more sites, the better. I'm hardly ever taking less than three to four sites on a diffusely affected animal. The other thing with site selection is you want to get a variety of lesions. So if you have a pet that you're biopsying and they have pustules, some depigmentation and some crust, get a little bit of everything, especially depigment into areas. Those sometimes are the most diagnostic areas because they're usually the active disease. Usually when areas are just starting to depigment, you have a process that's actively going on and that will progress to things like maybe a pustule and then a crust. Crust, there's usually an indication that things have been there a while. Now, crusting is so important. You still want to collect the crust, especially if you're looking for something like pemphigus, you certainly want to submit a crust. But if you have a deep pigmented area, like a fresh area on the nasal plenum or somewhere in the body that's just starting to kind of gray and depigment, definitely grab that area. But again, a variety of lesions. So pustules, crusting, depigmentation, a papule, bullae, vesicles, tumors, anything. If it looks different, just submit a lot of variety because again, this can really help increase the chance that you get an answer. Going back to the crust, though I do want you to submit other areas like the depigmented areas. If you are going to submit an area, if you biopsy and the crust pops off, you throw it in that jar. The crust is a must. This can be especially important when we have a case that we're suspecting pemphigus foliaceus because the acantholytic cells sometimes live in that crust. We love to get a pustule in pemphigus cases or active disease where you look at the epidermis and you can see the little acantholytic cells rising up. But if you've had a case that's chronically had issues, sometimes you will only find acantholytic cells in the crust. And if that crust pops off, you may find out from your pathology report that you just get like an ulcerative dermatitis or something like that because the crust has popped off and maybe it's pulled some of the epidermis with it. So don't be afraid to throw that crust within the jar. It can be really, really helpful. If you are collecting sites from a pet that has ulcerative lesions, you might want to go to the margin of the ulcer. You don't want to go right in the dead center of the ulcer. An ulcer pathologically means that epidermis is missing. And sometimes the answer can be in the epidermis, like in pemphigus foliaceus or, you know, apoptotic cells in an erythema multiforme case. So you really want to make sure that you're not just going right in the middle of an ulcerative area or a necrotic area, because that can be really difficult for the pathologist to read through. So again, go to the margin of the ulcer where maybe the process hasn't completely torn away the epidermis yet, but is active. Don't, I know it's really traditional. Um, you know, I was taught in school a long time ago. Um, it's kind of been around and old philosophy is to biopsy at the junction of the affected and the non-affected skin. 
I personally never do this. I don't find that you have to do this because the problem is when you submit a biopsy to be processed, they cut the biopsies very, very thinly and the pathologist just gets a slide with those thin areas attached to the slide. If they happen to cut in the non-affected skin because you have half of your biopsy taken up by non-affected skin, you could get a biopsy back that says, it's completely normal. And that's extremely frustrating for you. It's extremely frustrating for your clients because biopsy is not a cheap test. So I don't tend to go at all on the junction. I don't include non-affected skin. Now, I might go to the edges of things. Again, this is where looking to see if you have depigmentation around the the edges of an ulcerative area, things like that can be really helpful, but don't just include normal skins. If you have a really demarcated lesion, don't just put your biopsy on half normal and and half affected skin. You really want to get different representations of that lesion, but not necessarily getting affected, uh, non-affected skin. Next, let's talk about preparing for a biopsy. So you have a case, you feel like biopsy would really be the appropriate thing to do. Timing is everything. If you have a pet that comes in and maybe the disease was terrible a month before and now it's a little bit better, but it's still there, it may be worth letting that disease become more active before you actually biopsy the pet. The other thing is do not have the pet on a lot of steroids, hopefully none at all in an ideal world if you're going to biopsy, because if you have a pet on steroids, that could mask a lot of the answers that you could get. If if you can at least taper them to a low dose, or like I said, preferably off for a, a significant amount of time and let that disease get active as long as that's not contraindicated, It can be really important because if they're on steroids, even anti-inflammatory doses, that could calm down some of the inflammatory process enough in some of these cases where, again, you're not going to get a very conclusive biopsy. So timing's everything. We want these cases to be active. We don't want them to be masked by things like steroids or cyclosporin. Autoimmune diseases, even if they're not on steroids, they naturally can wax and wane. So again, if a pet was really bad, you know, in the past and now they're not so bad, it might be worth just kind of keeping an eye on them and having the owners get a hold of you when they notice those lesions starting to get worse so that you can get a more diagnostic sample. We talked about cytology and you know cytology is my favorite, but make sure you are collecting a cytology on these cases. If you have a crusted case, and you see a lot of infection, though that's not going to be the primary disease process, you need to treat that infection first in most cases before pursuing biopsy. You can get a biopsy result back conclusive with bacterial folliculitis, and that is not going to help you at all because you're not going to know the primary disease process. And again, that's frustrating for you and the owner. So if you do your cytology, no, you're going to do your cytology. I'm not even going to give you an if. You're doing your cytology on your cases before you biopsy them. 
and you see a significant infection, tell the owner, hey, let's treat this for a couple of weeks. Come on back. We'll recheck the cytology. If the infection is completely treated, but yet we're still seeing active lesions, let's get a biopsy at that point. So this is where cytology can still be a great tool, even in these severe cases, because we don't want to have to repeat biopsies if, it, if we can avoid it. You may or may not need sedation on these cases. A lot of them we do sedate, and I tend to use dextomatorb, um, plus or minus butorphanol, depending on the case and the situation. But there are cases, depending on the location of the lesion, how big the lesion is, how cooperative the pet is, that you might be able to do uh, awake biopsies. So I'll use local lidocaine with bicarb, and that can be really helpful in a really well-mannered dog. If you just have a truncal lesion and they're not painful and they can be calm, then a lot of them you actually can do without sedation. However, I wouldn't compromise the biopsies if you are able to sedate the pet. So if the pet's a mover and a shaker and just all over the place, then it is worth giving some sedation as long as, again, there's not a medical reason not to. I will say that I don't biopsy nasal planums or paw pads without sedation because those are just areas that are really sensitive and they tend to bleed and we want to make sure those pets are really, really still. So we do use sedation for those, sometimes even general anesthesia if there's a reason that using injectable sedation is not in the best interest for those pets. Talking about biopsying nasal planums and paw pads, the one thing I will say, will it bleed? It will indeed. Yes, they will bleed. Their nasal planums will bleed. I always have to chuckle to myself a little bit when I have vets ask me about that. We, I lecture sometimes on nasal planum diseases and someone will ask, well, doesn't it bleed a lot? You guys, a lot of you do abdominal surgeries, like you will cut out a spleen, but you're worried about a little punch on the nose. Yes, it will bleed. As long as it's not a super itsy bitsy cat or dog, it's okay. Like you can still put the sutures in, stop the bleeding. Um, and nasal planum biopsies, I guarantee if a dermatologist feels comfortable with the amount of blood that comes from a biopsy, uh, most of you guys will be just fine taking a biopsy. So take the, you know, the normal precautions of anything that could hemorrhage, but I wouldn't worry too much about it again. I do a lot of these um, by myself, no concerns or issues, and I don't do any abdominal surgeries. So you guys will be fine. One trick you can use sometimes on the paw pads is if you have like the accessory um, pad affected where they're not weight bearing on it, um, sometimes you could get a lesion from there. But again, you want to go for the most diagnostic lesion. So I have absolutely taken a a biopsy right in the middle of the center pad if I need to, if that's where the lesion is. You know, we can manage pain and do a light bandage if we need to, but it's pretty it's pretty phenomenal how well these pets will do and, and tolerate it really, really well. So for the majority of uh, biopsies, uh, for us, we're doing punch biopsies. The most common sized punch that I use is a six millimeter. This is a go big or go home situation. I really don't want you guys to be using itsy bitsy little punches if you don't need to. I would say for sure a six is the most common I use. Sometimes if I'm worried about bleeding, say it is like the nasal planum or a sensitive area in the paw pad, then I will use a four millimeter punch, but I never use anything smaller. I definitely think you don't want to 
be wimpy on using the punches. Uh, someone the other day asked me about using a two millimeter punch. I never have. Um, I know that's probably something like an ophthalmology they might use. That makes a lot of sense for them. But for us, we're looking at, you know, diffuse things on the body. Um, I pretty much never go below a four. So I would suggest in, in pretty typical cases, my opinion would be that you're using around a six millimeter punch. You know, we'll use eights and tens when we're taking off bigger nodular lesion lesions, but a typical biopsy most of the time, I think it's again, a six millimeter punch. Maybe if it's an area we're concerned about, like the nasal planum or the paw pads, four millimeter could be reasonable, but I would not go under that because you might not get a diagnostic sample. It is best when you are collecting these samples to try to rotate in one direction. So either go clockwise or counterclockwise. Don't kind of like, you know, macerate the tissue and move it all around because you could cause a lot of damage. Again, these are getting cut um, when they're getting processed. So you could get a more edge sample. And if you've really mucked around with it, that could cause a lot of damage and make it really difficult for the pathologist to read through that and give you an answer. Don't be afraid to punch deep in most of these diffuse cases. So you want to get down to that subcutaneous tissue. We do deal with, um, you know, weird, fungal infections or paniculitis cases where the answer really could be in the subcutaneous tissue and kind of kind of crawl up and affect the dermis too. So you really want to punch through in most of these cases to get to the subcutaneous tissue. Where you might need to be a little cautious of this is if you are biopsying like a pinna. The ear flap can be really tricky. Um, it's not one that I try to do unless I really have to, like, unless I really have a reason that that's the only area that I can sample because you can easily go through the, the penne. So what I'll do is I'll put my finger on the opposite side of the ear and then I'll lightly, lightly press my, my biopsy punch through until I can start to feel obviously not all the way through, but I can just start to feel that I'm pro uh, progressing the punch enough that it's starting to be evident on my finger on the other side of the ear. So I'm catching it before it actually cuts, cuts through. But you do have to be careful with suturing these ears and forewarning owners that if they shake their head, that it could end up being a bloody mess. So if you do sample a penne, I would suggest probably going smaller in most of those cases, like a four millimeter punch, um, and then placing you know loose sutures in, because if you do them too tight, then you'll make the ear fold up on itself. And then just having the owners be aware that they have to be really careful about the pet scratching at it or shaking their head. Be really gentle when you are collecting samples. Again, you don't want to macerate the tissue. So you want to go in one direction, push gently, pop through until you get to the hub of the punch and then remove the punch itself and then take your forceps, lightly pull up, um, on the edges of that sample. And then you can use scissors if you need to, to cut the deeper tissue, but you want to just really lightly grab with your forceps. You don't want to just grab it really tight and squeeze that sample as you're cutting it. You want to do a really gentle touch so that you don't get a lot of artifact. And then you want to make sure you also lightly blot. So if these are areas that are more bloody, you don't want to just throw it in the jar without blotting some of the excess blood off because that can give you a hemorrhage artifact. So make sure that you're very, very gently blotting it on a gauze and then putting it in formalin right away. 
Personally, after I take a biopsy, I suture most of these sites close with either just a simple cruciate or maybe a simple interrupted. If it's in in an area, I'm worried the pet could disrupt. So if it's on a weight-bearing surface or on on an area, I'm afraid they're going to chew. You could still reasonably do a cruciate, but for me, I do simple interrupteds. Gives me a little bit of a peace of mind that if that pet does get it out or one of the sutures does pop, that we still have another one sitting there, but that's a personal choice. There's no really right or wrong on that, but I do suggest um, I personally put in sutures. So that's just going over punch biopsies. Obviously, you can do incisional or excisional biopsies depending on how large the lesion is. If you're taking off a really, really large area, then you're obviously going to take the normal precautions that you would um, as if you're removing something like a large uh, skin mass. And then make sure to submit. When you do do a punch biopsy, if you're going to submit something like a tissue culture, this is about the only time I recommend prepping the surface before you collect that punch biopsy. When you're doing a normal punch biopsy where you're just trying to get a diagnosis, please don't prep the skin. Don't sterilize it. Don't scrub everything off because you could be scrubbing answers away. We as dermatologists are definitely not the most sterile people. I probably get a chuckle every time the surgeon walks by and see me doing something like a small uh, skin biopsy because I'm not like prepped at all because we want all of that crust and all that stuff on the surface. We don't want it scrubbed away at all. That is different if you're actually taking a tissue culture. So if you're worried that you could have something like a mycobacterium case or a weird deep fungal case, and you're going to submit a tissue culture so you can get a representation of the deeper tissue rather than culturing towards the surface, then you will prep the surface because you're not looking for the answers there. You're trying to remove any chance of contamination by disinfecting the surface and then sterilely collecting that sample because you are looking for the organisms and the sensitivities of the sample that's deeper in the tissue like the paniculus. So the difference will be once you prep that surface, you collect the biopsy sterilely, you're going to take that punched piece of tissue and actually put it in a sterile blood tube with a small amount of sterile saline. So no formalin, just a little bit of sterile saline will be helpful. And then make sure you submit it for culture. Now, if you're going to submit a tissue culture, it's ideal to not use lidocaine. There are some studies that show lidocaine can potentially inhibit growth of some bacteria and some fungal organisms. So it's ideal in those situations to not use it. So you want them to be under good sedation or general anesthesia for those cases. If you are submitting a regular, so going back to just a regular punches and you're putting them in formalin after you blot the sample, place them in a biopsy jar pretty quickly. So you don't risk them drying out. 10% formalin is really common and you do want the amount of formalin to be about 10 times greater, at least than the sample size so that you can get that tissue um, completely fixed through. If you are going to take different areas from the body, like different nodules or different tumors where it's really important for you to know the identification of each of those separately. And it's not just a diffuse disease where you just need the disease name. Then make sure to submit them in separately labeled jars. If you just throw, you know, three nodules into one jar, the pathologist, unless they're labeled with ink or something like that, are not going to know 
what lesion came from which area. So if it's really important for you to know whether that's a mast cell tumor or not, and you're submitting three of them, then you want to make sure to label them differently in different jars or put ink, something so that you can distinguish what those are so that if you do get a biopsy report back that has two benign follicular cysts, but then one mast cell tumor and you really couldn't tell the difference, we obviously need to know which one was the mast cell tumor. The last thing I'll mention is make sure when you are submitting a dermatopathology that it goes to a dermatopathologist. It's really important. Skins a, can be a tricky thing. There's a lot of weird uh, autoimmune diseases that maybe aren't as reported. There can be little nuances we need to pick up on. So it's really important that you're submitting to a dermatopathologist, someone who really focuses on skin diseases. There's several throughout the country, you know, University of California, Davis, Cornell, Penn, there's, there's private organizations in Washington and Kansas city. So just identify the dermatopathologist that you like. It's also really nice when you can contact them, show them clinical pictures, have that relationship, because sometimes it really can take a full scope of the dermatopathologist seeing the tissue sample, but then also seeing clinical pictures when we are really trying to work up some of these cases. So I hope that was super helpful as far as some tips for collecting skin biopsies. If you are finding this podcast um, beneficial, which I really hope you are, um, then please, please, please feel free to leave a positive review. The more um, I can get this reviewed and out there, the more veterinarians I'm hoping to reach so that we can continue to make Derm more fun than frustrating. And I hope that this will help you in your daily clinical practice. If there are any other ideas, as always, please feel free to reach out on my Instagram or my Facebook at the Derm Vet so I can keep giving you guys amazing Derm content. Until next time, keep up with those skin cases, cytology, everything. And remember, things like nasal planum, they'll bleed, but you can do it. You go in the abdomen.